Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today we have a guest who is truly one of the nicest people I have ever met, Dr. Beatrice Kondo. We originally met several years ago. She is the daughter of the late Dr. Yoji Kondo, who was a Rise of the Future judge as well as a celebrated astrophysicist. Dr. Beatrice Kondo is the Assistant Program Director for the Masters of Science Program in Biotechnology at Johns Hopkins University, which, by the way, was the same university Stephen Thomas Methridge, MD, graduated from before becoming Old Doc Methuselah 800 years later, a very popular science fiction series written by Owen Hubbard in the late 1940s for astounding science fiction. She began a career in software test engineering, testing Hubble Space Telescope management and control software before transitioning to the private sector, testing communication systems. She currently teaches advanced cell biology, genomic and personalized medicine, and comparative animal physiology. Perhaps old Doc Methuselah somehow graduated a similar class as that is the very substance of his profession. After all, we are entering the realm where science fiction meets science fact. She's also on the board of directors of the Heinlein Society. Welcome, Beatrice. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I've been following the podcasts, and uh, you have an intriguing variety of guests and topics. Yeah, it's something that I really enjoy, and we've we've spread our our wings a bit to hit you know different other areas. And after reading your um, bio, it, it opened up some new areas I want to be able to address in this podcast. But uh, first of all, just a brief discussion and introduction to yourself about, you know, what does that mean, what you do there at Johns Hopkins? Ah, well, um, I work in the Center for Biotechnology Education, and I actually wear several hats. Um, I The big program that I co-direct is the Master's in Biotechnology, but I also direct the Master's in Individualized Genomics and Health and the Postmaster's Certificate in Sequence Analysis and Genomics. And the overarching theme of what I'm trying to do is to improve healthcare and understanding of biology through dissemination of tools that allow people to look at the whole genome. The whole genome is all of a person's DNA. Instead of just looking at one gene or particular genes, you look at everything that there is and try to understand it and um, be able to manipulate it to get information out of it using bioinformatics methods. So long story short, what I'm interested in is to understand more about the human body and nature and the environment with the goal of having better personalized medicine, which is each person gets the medical advice and the lifestyle advice that fits them based on their DNA, their microbiome, how those things interact with the environment, the whole shebang, which wouldn't have been even possible 10 years ago with the computing power that we had then. But as computers become faster and faster and more capable of parallel processing, we're seeing these vistas opening up for what we can do in healthcare and medicine. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Now, 
what happened was when you sent me your bio and I had to look up several words, okay, what does that mean? Then all of a sudden just opened up to me and it just really dawned on me that science fiction and biotechnology have been related for, for actually many years, but you've got, you know, it's a continuing thing. In fact, Andy Weir just came out with the author of The Martian, just came out with a new book, Project Hail Mary, and it's about a microbiologist who helped save the earth. But science fiction is always a step ahead of real life science, but it seems like with what's happening right now, real life science is starting to catch up with, with uh, science fiction, at least in this one area. So biotechnology is now moving so fast that a lot of the science fiction not so long ago was just fiction is now part of our daily lives. So can you talk to me about that? Like some of these, like, I don't know how much you deal with animal engineering or what's being done with, with uh, people to be able to handle uh, malfunctioning organs. If you, yeah. if you get that branch at all, how's that, how's that fitting? Cause people that are, that are listening to this are aspiring writers and specifically with science fiction. This provides another bent on like, how do you, you know, research this? How do you do it? And some actual facts and figures about the subject of biotechnology that, that makes their stories more realistic. Absolutely. So um, basically, you know, if we look back in science fiction, there was science fiction that looked at genetic manipulation as a sort of a black box. Okay, we do this change and we get this result. And a lot of people wrote that way in a time when there wasn't enough known to be able to more accurately guess how you were going to do this manipulation. So right. what, what can we do now and what's realistic and what will we be able to do soon? Right now, you can't just do things like um, manipulate a genome and have a person grow wings. And that's actually for a number and, and have them work too. So, that's for a number of different reasons um, having to do with mostly the fact that a lot of our traits are not one gene. There are master control genes that set off a whole cascade of things early in the development. So when just after the egg and sperm meet and there's an organism that's a one-celled organism, developmental biology steps in there and starts controlling which genes are turned on where and saying this tissue is going to become an arm and this is the part of the arm closest to the body and this is the part furthest away. So it's very complicated. And what's easier to do, what we can do right now, the second, is to edit single genes when there is a disorder. And you may have heard of CRISPR. Um, that's going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah, that's the newest technology that makes it much simpler to do that. Before then, it was much more complex and hard to to cause the substitution of DNA. Um, so CRISPR. The idea is that originally we found that there's a repair mechanism that can recognize defects and splice them out. All right. So. Doudna and Charpentier found a way to use this repair mechanism so that we could, from outside, decide to generate changes in genes. And this can be done for research or to fix things. And there are some diseases where we know it's just this gene, and if we just fix this, it will go away. So, for example, um, colorblindness or hemophilia, 
those are genes there. There's one gene. And if you can do a quick edit, you can fix it. Now, we have an international consensus that right now, no one will mess with the human germline. And what that means is we won't change any DNA that could go into a sperm or an egg to make a new human being. But we are agreed that we can edit genes in cells that don't go on to the next generation. So for example, you could edit uh, genes in cells for the pancreas, perhaps. Um, so I would imagine that it might not be so long before we have a meaningful cure for diabetes. And so CRISPR allows you to edit the DNA, but then you still need to have a whole bunch of cells with the new DNA, so you have to introduce them. And then we get into another field of biotechnology, which is, well, really there are two things. There's um, engineering, tissue engineering, and then there's stem cell technology, and they overlap with each other. And so the idea is that if you can take somebody's stem cell and engineer it to become the kind of cell you want, you could build new organs that way. Tissue engineering takes over because it looks at complex types of cells that interact with each other. Like your stomach doesn't just have one kind of cell. It has multiple kinds of cells and you need to be able to cause them to grow together to form this organ. And so that's a lot more complex than just working in a Petri dish. So that's tissue engineering. So what we're looking at in the near future is being able to do things like grow replacement organs for people from their own tissue. So that eliminates any questions of transplant rejection or of ethics for people who don't want to take a transplant from somebody else. It enables the possibility to change things on the fly. Right now, there are certain genetic diseases where they do ongoing therapy to just change some cells to help people function better. So there are a lot of things that are presently there or will be there within another decade or two that were hinted at um, long ago in science fiction. But what's less likely is if you understand the physiology, and that's where my background in physiology comes in, you understand that all creatures that fly, for example, have a very low body density. They're light, even for their size. If you hold a bird in your hand or you hold a mouse the same size in your hand, the mouse weighs a lot more. And so people are not gonna be able to be engineered to have wings and fly because we are mammals and we are dense unlike birds. Um, now, there are mammals that fly, bats, but they have a pretty specialized physiology. So you have to change the whole organism to be able to fly. Another popular thing in science fiction is to be able to swim underwater and breathe. And some mammals can do that. They don't breathe underwater. They don't have gills, but they are able to hold their breath for extended periods underwater. So if an author wanted to write about humans living underwater, the answer would be to look at dolphins and whales and seals and how they do it rather than trying to make humans like fish because fish, yes, can get oxygen out of water via gills, but the trouble is 
fish have a lower oxygen need. They have a much lower metabolic rate than we do. They are cold-blooded, so they can make do with a lot less oxygen. If we were to try to get our oxygen for our needs out of water, it wouldn't work out because we have such a great oxygen need. So when I, I saw the abyss. I saw the abyss. <laughs> yes. I've actually wondered what happened with that because Jim Cameron was so good with um, technology and knowing what was there. And I thought, well, what has happened with that super oxygenated fluid that he used there? Are they using that or, you know, what has become of that? That was an awesome movie. I really liked it, even though it do so, didn't do so well. I thought it was great. Now, you made a comment earlier on about the ethics. And this is something that I know science fiction has approached, but also a few years ago with the CRISPR babies that were, you know, in China, like what was in 2017 or something like that? Yeah. So just the ethics of this, because now this, this opens up a door for especially science fiction writers to, you've got the ethical side of the use of this technology, then you've got the um the unscrupulous side to be able to create the superhumans the super um the super warriors um you know things like that so explain how that would actually how that could evolve and something that again more information for the aspiring writer or even as an advanced writer who's like doesn't know about this particularly what are the um what are this, the downsides yeah yeah um so of course there's the simple downside, like, could you create human beings that we would consider monsters? Could you make people who are suffering in some way, and yet they are tools? And so there we have the intersection of what will be legislated, what will be agreed upon, and also what is possible. I feel as though we maybe don't have to worry too much about the super soldier thing because pragmatically what's probably going to happen is the super robot instead. Why, sure. why bother, you know, to, to enhance a human when there are robots out there that can do so much better? I wonder, you know, at what point there really won't be soldiers anymore. And I actually hope that time is soon. But then we'll probably do other nasty things because humans always invent things to do to each other. So, exactly. <laughs> but now in terms of what are the pitfalls? Why do we have controls on what you can do? What about the Chinese babies? Um, you know, there are issues with understanding how genes interact with each other and how a change on one gene affects another gene. And it's complex. Like it, it takes sophisticated computing, and even then, we're often guessing. Like with COVID 19, there is this thing called a genome wide association study, GWAS, that you use to see if a bunch of people get a disease or have a problem, but a bunch of other people don't. Is there a complex array of different genes that somehow affect your risk? And they did a genome-wide association study with COVID-19 and found some genes that were related to greater risk for complication and death. Um, so that kind of thing takes time. It's complex. And there's a danger with people rushing ahead and just doing something that they think is cool, like a kid playing with, you know, parts in a backyard with not thinking about 
how those things relate to other things. So, you know, could you think it'd be very helpful to do this one thing, but then find out that you've created other complications you didn't foresee? Those are the kinds of things we'd really rather not experiment on human beings with. And yeah, it, it even gets down to simple things like which genes are near other genes, which is called linkage. So if one gene is near another on a chromosome, sometimes a bad gene gets carried along because it's linked to a good gene. That's putting it in simple terms, but the idea is that if you mess with things that are close to each other on a chromosome, you end up disturbing something very productive or important. Okay. Now, what about the concept of creating stuff through, you know, again, through biotechnology, creating a uh, serum or, or some type of a, um, again, I'm thinking science fiction and the, uh, the evil doctor sinister, you know, <laughs> right. who, uh, who creates something that when it's, when it's diffused through aerosol, you know, or dispersed from canisters shooting from a, a, a plane shooting up high that, settles over a city and then all of a sudden it creates whatever mutations is that something that also then falls that that could be taken as a as a, a negative ethics side of this whole evolution well um actually introducing genetic change into the organism isn't so easy because of our built-in defense systems so you have to get the new dna into cells and that means they have to get past our skin our digestive tract our respiratory tract and each of those have associated defense systems so we have skin associated lymphoid tissue gut associated lymphoid tissue and so on um, we have things that keep cells as a whole from entering our body so like literally when you eat food meat um, vegetables, whatever. Those cells enter your digestive tract, but they don't cross the barrier into your bloodstream. Your digestive tract breaks down that stuff and takes out only the molecules that it needs, fats, proteins, carbohydrates. And so they're not going in as whole large macromolecules. They're going in as small building blocks that don't convey information. So it's actually quite difficult. Now, it does happen, and you may be thinking of something like mad cow disease. And that's yeah. actually a fascinating field of study. How did those proteins somehow cross the barrier? So, yes, there is a possibility, but it's not very easy to get DNA to go over into the body. Viruses are a good way to do it. And so everybody's minds are on viruses now with COVID-19. And that is one of the ways that you can introduce foreign DNA into a body. And so I think the threat we need to look at is probably viral. And yes, that's a serious issue that uh, we don't know where it will lead. Isn't that what uh, Stephen King had in the, in the stand? Was that like a, a viral? I'm actually fairly squeamish about the horror genre, and I did not read the stand. Okay, yeah, <laughs> but it's one of those things that just it just wiped out virtually the entire planet in just a few 
the stand, just the, the, the survivors. Right. But anyway, it's just, you know, it's it's definitely makes for anybody that writes horror, but also it doesn't have to be horror. It could also just be like what Andy, we're, I haven't read his book yet, mm -hmm. but that whole thing there, how Earth is almost, you know, wiped out. And then as a as a bioengineer, being able to help save the Earth. I just think it's, it's fascinating because it is, it's such a relevant and fast changing, evolving technology that you're involved with. I'm just immense respect for you with what you're doing and stuff here. And then obviously because you're Johns Hopkins, which came to my attention, unfortunately, or just fortunately, originally when I read Old Doc Methuselah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then obviously it's become very, I've known it very much now from reading all the updates on COVID coming from uh, Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just fascinating for anybody who's interested in writing this type of science fiction. It doesn't, it can also be a very positive, it doesn't have to be a dystopian type of a story. It can also be very much a, a very positive utopian type thing, how, you know, it results in something very good for the, for the future and advance of civilization. Oh, right. I mean, I mentioned viruses as a very good um, genetic material delivery system, and they are used to help people to deliver things into cells um, for health benefits. So definitely a case, as with most things in medicine, where if it's powerful enough to really change something, to do good, it can also do evil. Yeah. And, and that's really one of those complex questions for us as a species, as we have more and more power to do things Will we advance in our wisdom, our judgment, so that we make the right decisions and not the wrong ones? Yeah, I mean, legislating is, is going to be, it applies to people that obey the law. Right. You know, so it's as good as the people that obey the law, but the people that don't obey the law, you can legislate all you want to, and it's not going to really uh, affect anything. But anyway, I think this is just fascinating talking, and I'm really glad to be able to have a chance to talk to you about this. My original reason for wanting to interview, though, was um, you're a member of the board of directors for the Robert A. Heinlein Society. So how did you become connected and a member of that society? Well, the story starts in the 1970s um, when my dad's friend, Carl Heneisa, an astronaut, attended a talk by Robert Heinlein's brother. And he happened to have with him a book that my father, who was a big fan of Heinlein's writing, had given him. And so he went to Heinlein's brother after the talk and mentioned all this. And through one step and another, the next thing was that Robert Heinlein was calling our house to ask my father astrophysics questions. And so they developed a friendship. And then as a result, my father and, and the Heinleins had a lifelong association, and I did on the periphery. I was a little girl then. But um, eventually, after Robert Heinlein passed, Virginia Heinlein sanctioned the formation of the Heinlein Society, and she was the original member. And um, so the purpose of the Heinlein Society from the point of view of most of us involved with it, was to follow one of the themes that Heinlein repeatedly put into his works and even into his nonfiction public speeches, the idea of, of paying it forward, 
And so those of us who appreciated his writing and felt that it added something to our lives want to be able to, of course, share that with others, but also to do meaningful things for others. And so the Heinlein Society does blood drives. Heinlein was a rare blood type. And he used to say that the fee for his autograph at conventions was that you donate blood. Now, I don't think he absolutely stuck to that. And certainly there are people who can't donate blood. But it's been one of the things that Heinlein Society does is to sponsor blood drives at science fiction conventions. Heinlein himself was a veteran, as was L. Ron Hubbard. And so both of them believed in reading and um, the importance of exciting people's imagination. So another thing that the Heinlein Society does is Heinlein for Heroes, which collects used science fiction and fantasy books and sends them to soldiers, as well as to veterans at, at VA hospitals and so on. Then another thing is the Heinlein Scholarships, which are to people who are either studying in the science and technology field or uh, also studying science fiction literature and things related to Heinlein um, from a literary bent. And then there's the Heinlein Award, which is made to recognize specifically science fiction authors who have written in a way that inspires the human exploration of space. Actually, it can also be science authors, but mostly it is science fiction authors. And so the motivation there is the feeling that humankind ought to be expanding and growing and exploring. So that's a core value that we like to support. And the advisors for that are noted science fiction authors and then the Kondo family also supports that. So I'm also an advisor on that. So those are kind of the things that we're focusing on in the Heinlein Society. And I actually was invited to uh, run for a board position. I hadn't really thought about it specifically, but um, I, I it was sometime around when my father was uh, was failing and he hadn't been involved in some time. And so I did run and uh, now I'm part of the team. Which is great. You made a, a comment earlier on in the, in the functions of the, of the society about honoring, respecting the, the military service. Just as a, an interesting um, side note of that, theyshallwalk.org credits uh, Heinlein Starship Troopers with giving the Mark Monty Reed, the one that created it, uh, with Starship Troopers, with giving him the inspiration for the exoskeleton suit, which will aid disabled veteran veterans and citizens to walk again. And he got that from Starship Troopers. It was originally to be, uh, named the Heinlein, and then they, they didn't go with that direction because it was a little bit too... Um, Oh, well, I, I think, you know, he was inspired by it, but everybody might know, not know that, uh, that reference. Yeah. But that's, that's nice for us to know. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it, it is something that, uh, you know, I don't know that he was thinking about that, but he would be thrilled, I'm sure, to know yeah. that that was what was done with, with the exoskeleton that the troopers wore in Starship Troopers. Yeah. And then in 66, Heinlein wrote uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and 
you know, that's, you get into those, this prophecy or science fiction, but it was a few years later that Apollo 11 departed for the moon. And in a video of the launch, you got Arthur C. Clarke, you got uh, Bob Heinlein and Walter Cronkite all discussing the significance of the event. And Heinlein specifically declared it to be the most important day ever as mankind was going to finally grow up, which like you said, is to be able to go out into space. Yeah, I think he probably would have been disappointed that we took a hiccup there. And sure. hopefully we're on a new path now, and particularly with... Um, SpaceX, the Elon Musk SpaceX. Yes. Um, yes. So that's a separate... There's also a, um, a Heinlein Prize, which is separate from the Heinlein Society, but that uh -huh. um, rewards the commercial exploration of space. So that was obviously a very important value that his estate funded that prize. And, yeah. Um, I I think we're finally seeing some action there. For sure. And it's also interesting with uh, Owen Hubbard and, and Robert Heinlein, where after World War II, as Korea was beginning to escalate, uh, there was a meeting held in um, Heinlein's house in Los Angeles. Uh, it was in Los Angeles, I think, where it was, that um, they met and decided we need to start writing some science fiction that gets men's, mankind's attention off of uh, war on Earth, and let's fight the enemy out there, which is the unknown of space. And so you started seeing more science fiction coming from them and other authors as well on mankind going into into space as a project. And that's that was kind of like it helped to wind down the arms race and start building the space race. And so that's something that that these science fiction authors actually helped to initiate by building all this agreement with not only their, their relationships in DC, but also just with the consistency of the readership who just really wanted to get that and were very, very supportive of that. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe, are you referring to the time when they lived in, um, in Santa Cruz? Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. At Bonnie Dune. Um, and uh, I do think we should not underestimate the power of exciting the human imagination and the importance of doing so, people tend to go down rabbit holes of the current conflict or the current problem. And focusing the view to, to the future, to the outside, to other things besides just what's right here at this moment can help people to gain some perspective. Yeah, and that's, I think it's one thing too that that Heinlein had, like when he wrote his uh, Starship Troopers in 1959, he wasn't really calling to attack Russia. He was like, he's putting it. He was again putting attention on what was happening out there. These you had these aliens, these these spider bugs that were coming attacking. So what are we prepared to, to handle an attack? Are we prepared for this and that? So again, he was like, we need to start confronting out there, and which is what. Again, he and and Hubbard and others were doing was to try to put man's attention out there. What do we have to do to be able to to conquer out there? And what's out there? And he he, in that book in Starship Troopers, he posed, here's here's something that, you know, they say, oh, that's just science fiction. Well, show me otherwise. But it's it's something that we we definitely need to to anticipate. Yes, um, and I think, uh, you know, but he didn't want to make it all about. Um, possible conflict uh, so most of his books took place outside of the earth's atmosphere yeah. and yeah. um i think that was 
just important for people to think that there's something more out there and to be excited about something more out there in a positive way too. I mean, he had people colonizing, going not only through the solar system, but out into other solar systems. And, um, you know, that gives infinite space for humanity to explore its infinite diversity too. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, there was a, um, it's interesting how they just, you know, we've been talking back and forth a bit about Robert Heinlein and, and L. Ron Hubbard because they were friends for quite a bit of their adult life. And when Owen Hubbard wrote Battlefield Earth, and he sent a, a copy to, uh, to Bob in, um, in 1982, he sent a letter back to him, you know, of um, saying Battlefield is a, is a terrific story. But he just goes on talking about, again, from that basic theme, it was a good story from page one, then it got better when we reached Scotland, then still better in Africa, then again, when ships from other cultures showed up, then, for my taste, reached its high point and stayed there when you revealed that you, the little gray men were intergalactic bankers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so again, again, let me see how much I enjoyed Battlefield Earth. Always your friend, Bob. So it, it was a long letter, but that was some of the different points out of it, you know, that he, that he said there. But any particular thing about, you know, because Bob definitely had his definite societal and cultural ideas as well, you know, with religion and with uh, relationships and whatnot like that. Anything about that that you've, you know, any stories? Ah, well, so first of all, I just want to say that it doesn't surprise me that those were the things he praised about Battlefield Earth because yeah. they shared a sense of adventure and enjoying travel and other cultures. And yet there's a certain groundedness to both of their stories about things like the bankers, the lawyers, and so on. And yes, they're yes. with us to stay. And how they, it, it's not just about the hero with, with the laser gun. Um, right. And so I, I must admit that was this sort of splash of cold water that, oh, yes, they will, <laughs> they will have their say. Um, but now I do think um, a lot of the, the themes that I see. So a lot of what we know about Heinlein isn't so much what he wrote in essays as just that even though characters are characters and they're not the author, if the positive characters in multiple books espouse a certain idea, we start to think that could be a value of the authors. And so themes that, that I saw again and again that I liked were things like the work the problem idea, which that phrase came from, I think, the Apollo 13 movie. Um, yeah. And that's that's a theme that his characters tend to, they, they get into some situation and they have to think their way out. Not with the deus ex machina, but, you know, by examining the problem, by thinking about how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. And another core value clearly seems to be learning, learning about yeah. everything, yeah. science, humanity, history, sociology, psychology, it's all in there. And the idea that it's always characters were able to solve problems because they learned and um, valued learning. Another yeah. thing that I think comes in a lot is the anti-authoritarianism 
which just speaks to my heart. And uh, I, I can certainly see why Heinlein would have valued Battlefield Earth because certainly Johnny wasn't inclined to be bossed around or told, well, just because, or to value anything other than his own good judgment. And and so I think I read his books because those values spoke to me and made me care about the characters. But at the same time, a phrase that stuck in my mind more than anything was this bizarre phrase, men are not potatoes. And it was from Starship Troopers, which you mentioned before. And mm -hmm. it was, they were saying, well, you know, if a soldier is caught behind enemy lines and then we send a platoon to rescue him and three of them die, does that make sense? Now we've lost three to save one. And, you know, if you had one potato going bad, would you sacrifice three to save it? And this guy who's in this history and moral philosophy class, the student is saying, well, I have no answer except men are not potatoes. And, <laughs> but that theme comes up again and again and um, was even in a public address that Heinlein made at the Naval Academy about the pragmatics of patriotism. And the story is about this person getting caught on the train tracks. And I think it was a woman and her husband and a hobo tried to free her and um, the hobo got killed. And that happened at Swope Park. That theme comes up in stories again and again that men are not potatoes. Human, human life is beyond price. And so people don't count the price in trying to save a human life. So that sort of, you know, in case people start thinking that Heinlein is about nothing but by your bootstraps and intellectual learning, there's that important human piece. And I think the theme of love, you know? That's, uh, I mean, that, that's very good. And it's one thing too that uh, you mentioned, you know, his, his attention on, on learning. Um, he also made a comment to uh, Ron Hubbard of his storyline. I said, I always thought there were only, you know, a few different types of storylines, but I learned from you that there's another type of storyline, which is the man that, that learned better. And he listed them all off and he said, that's a new one that he just realized that's how uh, Hubbard wrote where, because both of them have their, you know, their protagonists aren't necessarily all these goody goody people. They're just, you know, they're not always on the, like you said, they're, you know, they're not necessarily always like, okay, let's do what it says and just be, you know, good, good boys and girls. Right. But at the very end, when, when confronted with something that needs to be dealt with, you know, what they do is they learn to do the right thing. The man that learned to do better, you know, so he does it both in his, his males and females where they, you know, they're, they do something and maybe aren't doing the right stuff at the beginning, but then they're confronted with something and they learn to do the right thing as the type of a story that he writes. And that was just, I'm just, that was one of those things that, um, that Heinlein originated. He said, I just, I realized there's a, a, another storyline that you, that you created and that's the man that learned better. I mean, it's an important theme because who's going to identify with a hero that just always does everything right? Yeah. I mean, you know, if we want to strive to do better, we need to see that people we admire make mistakes and then strive to do better or are maybe not going on a path that seems like a good one and then they learn. Yeah, you got to be able to, to relate and identify with, with the, uh, the characters in a story. Do you have a particular favorite? I actually have several favorites, and <laughs> I was trying to think, well, what is the common theme about my favorites? 
And it's interesting because, and I wouldn't have thought that this would matter to me, but they all have these interesting, strong-willed and very independent women characters. So basically, I started with the Puppet Masters, which was uh, an adventure yarn, um, but one of his adult ones, not one of the juveniles, and and dealt with alien invasion. And there's this character, Mary, who is kind of a secret agent type of character, but she's very strong and very pragmatic. And um, so, and she doesn't necessarily say a lot. She's more of the strong silent type, which is kind of breaking cast molds of the time. Um, right. And, but then I also really like, for, for many different reasons, I like the character Hazel Stone, who shows up in three different books, at least. She shows up in The Rolling Stones, she shows up in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and then she shows up in The Cat Who Walks Through Walls. And basically, she's feisty, she's an engineer, she's verbally very, you know, always comes up with a zinger line, and she, but she has tremendous good spirits and always works to find the answer. And uh, so I, I really liked her. And then the last one is Hilda in The Number of the Beast. And um, she's um, like everybody else around her has PhDs and she doesn't, but she is incredibly well read and very canny about people. And she ends up being the leader of their group. And this is something that I think Heinlein had a pretty clear understanding of what women are up against in leadership roles and how, how that can be addressed. And so it was wonderful to read that book, which was published decades ago now, where we start with one guy saying, well, of course, the young man should be our leader. It's his ship and he's the captain. And they try out everybody being the leader. And it ends up pretty clear to everybody that actually Hilda is the one that's most capable of tactic thinking and um, guiding them towards where they all want to go. That's great. Because that's something also that's just, it's now just now coming of age, just that whole concept. So that's he was definitely ahead of his time on that for certain. Yeah. And it's, I think because he was writing in his times, people didn't notice it. It just sort of went right on over their heads that, oh, well, you know, he wrote in Starship Troopers that almost all of the captains are women because they're better at the higher math. You know, yeah. and he just threw that out there, and people ignored it and thought about the exoskeletons and the fighting, and never asked, "Well, why did he say that the women would mostly be the starship captains?" You know, that's true. You know, so it's um, it's just interesting as as it evolves. The the early science fiction authors really were the creating the herald of possibility and and predicting a lot of what's come to pass. Yeah, and that's what I hope. And that's why I think it's important for there to be new talent in the field that thinks new thoughts. We don't know what's coming next, but we want people, lots of different people with different imaginations to put the possibilities out there for us. For sure. And that's the whole thing that that both Heinlein and Hubbard have of paying it forward 
you know, we've we met on the grounds of the Writers of the Future competition that uh, Owen Harbour created in 1983, of which your father was uh, one of the earlier judges. You know, we had a lot of fun when he was when he was here, and it was obviously a really like the fact that you know meeting uh, your mother and yourself as a result of that. But it's just you know that whole thing of paying it forward with the Writers of the Future. Now, what was it? Two years ago, you made a presentation or a, a letter from the Heinlein uh, Society to the writers of the future because of that that whole thing, what it does. Yes, that was for the 35th anniversary of Writers of the Future. And basically, I think that uh, Writers of the Future is carrying forward L. Ron Hubbard's idea of inspiring people through starting with young, or not, not young in age, but young in their careers, authors and fostering them and their gifts. And Heinlein bookends that um, with the Heinlein Award where we recognize authors who have inspired people towards, towards the exploration of space. And so it's funny how the, these two friends, even after their passing, have managed to continue on with that shared value. I, I absolutely agree with you. So um, we're pretty much coming up with the end of our um, hour here. Anything, because we've, we've been all over the place. <laughs> There's a lot more than I originally considered we would be doing, but this has been so much fun, as I knew it would be. Anything else you wanted to say that I didn't ask you? Uh, let's see. You know, you, you had mentioned to me something about favorite quotes of Heinlein. I did have a couple that, that particularly appealed to me. Uh, For sure, please. <laughs> so one is from The Cat Who Walks Through Walls, and the character is Richard Ames, or, or Colin Campbell. He had two names. And the quote is, a monarch's neck should always have a noose around it. It keeps him upright. And to me, that speaks to the anti-authoritarian streak that I so identify with in Heinlein. Yeah. And Great one. yeah, it, it, you know, short and to the point, but there you are. And another one is from The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And it's a character called a professor. I think his full name is Professor Bernardo de la Paz. But anyway, he says this thing that says, I am free no matter what rules surround me. If I find them tolerable, I tolerate them. If I find them too obnoxious, I break them. I am free because I know that I alone am morally responsible for everything I do. And the reason I like that, he's not just saying I can do whatever I want. He's saying, I am morally responsible. So in the end, whether what you do is good or bad, you're responsible. Not whether you follow the rules or whether other people's rules agreed, but, but you're responsible. And I think a lot of people take the ideas of, of human freedom and they don't balance them with responsibility. And you have to acknowledge your responsibility for the consequences of your actions when considering that you are a free individual. So that was my other favorite quote. Well, those are two awesome quotes. So I think that's a good way to end this uh, interview. Thank you for listening. 
Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Beatrice. Thank you very much, John. It was a pleasure speaking with you tonight, as always. 